Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Horderbaum, and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the Firefighter Wellness Program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to primalosophy.com slash UFF to get started. My guest on the podcast today is Matt Winning. He holds a master's degree in biomechanics and a bachelor of science in exercise science from Ball State University. He's broken three all-time world records in powerlifting with an 1,197-pound squat equipped, a 865-pound raw squat, a bench press of 611, 2,204 total raw. He was a member of Westside Barbell from 99 to 2007. He's a tactical trainer for first responders, police, and SWAT teams. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, not a problem. So this has been a long time coming, man, and it's a privilege to speak with you about something as important as firefighter wellness. So how did you get involved with the fire service initially, and what do departments expect from you as their contractor? Yeah, um, well, the fire service started from working with the military, so... Um, I got this random email probably in 2006. It was asking me if I'd come down to Fort Benning, Georgia and work with Ranger Regiment um, trying to help them to develop a new strength training protocol because they were getting a ton of injuries and, and uh, they, weren't, they weren't performing as well. So I go down there. I'm just kind of fresh out of master's school. I don't know a whole lot about tactical, but I do know a lot about looking at biomechanics and, and understanding human movement and um, you know, studying a lot of impact and injuries in school. So go down to Fort Benning, Georgia, work with some Rangers, um, make a pretty big wave down there. And they see a ton of injury reduction and performance increases with the stuff that I was, um, that I was assessing and or assisting with. And that put me in a magazine in about 2007 or eight. Um, and that magazine caught the attention of the former chief of Dublin, Ohio's fire department chief Al Wu and Al Wu uh, got a hold of me through a guy named Tom Wagner, which was their health and wellness kind of coordinator up there and asked if I would be willing to come in and do a, uh, um, you know, an interview to see if I could come up and help Dublin. So I was like, well, yeah, I mean, it seems like I could do the same thing with what I was doing with, with the uh, Ranger regiment, what I could do with, um, with the fire department. So I go up there and, um, me and chief Wu hit it off really well because he's a fairly physically fit guy for being a, being a fire chief and, um, our relationship, you know, really, really blossomed to where we were doing a lot of talks at chiefs conferences and things like that. But I think the most important thing with, uh, chief Wu and I's relationship was that he was keeping very stringent insurance data on all the stuff we were doing. So in 2005, when they decided they needed a health and wellness coordinator, to actually come in that was a professional, they were spending over a half a million dollars in insurance premiums a year. Um, so fast forward five, six years after implementing what we were doing and putting weight rooms and all of the, all of the, uh, all of the firehouses and then implementing the proper strength conditioning programs with the proper mindset and education, we dropped that down to 125,000 a year. So once that happened, um, that started to catch the eye of a lot of the different fire departments around town. And, um, that was all she wrote. So I just kept really detailed notes and I've learned so much from working with Dublin's fire department that, um, I, I transferred that to Whitehall, then transferred that to Pickerington or Violet, and then transferred that now to, um, Jackson or Grove city fire department. So, um, 
keeping in charge of all these different departments has really taught me a lot along the way. Um, and, and it's actually created results so much faster at Jackson or Grove city because of all of the things that I've, I've learned. So I've just been really lucky that, um, a department was willing to take a risk on hiring a strength coach. Number one, number two, taking a very, um, odd approach to doing what I felt was the right way to do things. And then holding on to that particular scenario long enough to actually see the results. So that's kind of how it all happened. Um, and, you know, I just constantly keep learning 5% differently than I did five years ago based on what I see, what I analyze, what I measure. Um, you know, we're really big into uh, metabolic analytics now where we do um, body fat testing, which gives us our lean mass and then helps me to tell the guys with their caloric range where they need to stay and how much protein they need to take in per day. Um, trying to switch them overall to a little bit more vertical style dieting and get their carbs more from rice than, than other poor products and just kind of changing the, just the lifestyle. I mean, I think that's the biggest hurt of the fire department is we get guys that don't have more than a high school education with nutrition. You know, the average person doesn't eat very clean. And then you add that on top of a high stress job um, where you have guys that are below athletic level doing extreme athletic things on occasion with lifting heavy patients and moving people. It's just a recipe for disaster. And, um, you know, the fire department doesn't always get the top shelf athlete to come out and try to do that. And number one, number two, you know, understanding how to be a great fireman or, or EMS or any, any of that kind of stuff is not a simple task to be awesome at it. And I think that, um, you know, combining those two things gets to be very difficult. And then if you look at the administration side, you know, they still have to fill seats. I mean, you know, you still need, you know, Dublin still needs 130 firemen to function. So you combine those three things where, you know, it's hard to get an athlete to come out and try that for that job. It's hard to get them to pass the testing. And then it's hard to, you know, keep the seats full. You have a pretty big issue with a fire department selection process. So, you know, changing lifestyles is one of those things that I try to do and try to help with and then also try to fix the youngest guys in the department so that way it's not a problem in 20 years. Creating a healthier fire service kind of starts with hiring healthy people. And I've heard you say if you want to train someone to be tough, you need to recruit toughness, not make toughness. So have you developed a physical for departments to use to test new recruits and hire better? Well, that's one thing that we have to be very careful with because, you know, I've slowly, as I've gotten more mature in this particular field, you start realizing that you still have to follow pretty stringent laws. I mean, we have rules on what you can do before you hire someone, how you can select them. So I feel that the fire departments are probably doing the best job that they can based on the fact that sometimes one, they either don't have the budget to work with to do the proper testing Mm -hmm. Two, they're in a rush to get new guys when old guys retire. And three, it's, you know, physical capacity in the fire service is one of those things. It's still kind of a new scenario and a new way of doing things based on the fact of the old ways. So, like, if you look at a lot of the, you know, uh, pre-entrance exam physical fitness fire tests, I mean, an average person can pass those if they know what they're doing, which I think is a poor way to select physical um, attributes and also the property of aging. I mean, the thing of it is when most of these guys take these tests, they're between, you know, say 20 and 25 years old. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that they sustain that level of capacity when they're 45 to 55 years old. So 
you know, the problem is, is with the fire services, we're taking an athlete, which I consider all firemen to be athletes, whether they agree or not. We're taking an athlete instead of having them in a pro football for two to four years, you're having him for 25 or 30 years. That's a completely different scenario that requires a completely different mindset in training and thought process of longevity. And when you go into the fire departments that you're contracted with, do you assess their current gym equipment and then recommend certain pieces like squat racks and reverse hypers based on budget or what? What I've learned is that when I come in, we, we don't recommend anything. If they want to hire me, then this is what they buy. Um, okay. Because what I've learned is that if we just say, oh, well, you know, I'll come in and take the job and then we'll slowly get the equipment over time. We don't see the results nearly as fast because we don't have the right tools. Mm-hmm. So for me to set myself up for success we really come in with a full line product protocol and it's pretty much you need to have all this stuff before i start or either you have to be comfortable with taking a while to see the results or you have to be comfortable with not seeing the results at all now i'm not saying that i can't get a lot of things done with minimal stuff but um i just learned to set myself up for success so when i went down to grove city they already had 80 percent of the stuff i wanted before i started day one Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff that people probably won't have is what your belt squat. Um, it, it depends. I mean, yeah, your, your belt squats are, are going, I think in the future going to be a tool that you see in almost every firehouse, especially with proper education, because it's a great way to get insanely strong without causing any vertebral spinal mileage or damage. Mm-hmm. And that's just something that can't be done with a back squat and a, and a deadlift. Now that doesn't mean that those lifts aren't utilized in my scenario or should not be utilized in other people's scenario. It just means that for volume parameters, you're better off selecting something that's lower mileage, especially if you're dealing with a mass group of people that could be anywhere from the ages of 20 with no background in strength training, all the way up to 45 or 50 with pre-existing injuries. There's just, there's a, that's a huge um, blueprint that you have to learn to design something that's good for everyone. And I feel that the belt squat's one of the few tools that actually fits in that entire scenario. The few times I made it into your gym, Ludus Magnus, years ago, we focused on squats and deadlifts and using the kettlebell swings example, you made it clear that my legs would burn out long before my lungs. And you find this with most tactical contractors is that their maximal strength is very weak. So it makes their cardiovascular systems have to work much harder. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah. I mean, so the problem is, is like everything is a cat and mouse game, even with, um, with, especially with physical fitness. So what you'll find is that most people, um, especially if they're not too far overweight, they will be able to cardiovascularly do certain output more so than they will be able to withstand muscular strain or muscular strength. So what I have found that with the proper type of warmups, i.e., the warmups named after me, winning warmups and um, using maximal effort strength with moderate rest periods and doing accessory work and circuit-based activities, um, you start to find that the lactate threshold, muscular strength, and muscular power all start to coordinate itself in with, um, with endurance. And I think that's the problem is that everybody thinks, well, I need to be fit, so I'm going to run or I'm going to walk. In reality, what you should probably do is get strong and get lean. So if you want more cardio, don't carry any body fat. So if you're eating super clean and you drop 25 pounds of body fat and you get stronger, your cardiovascular output's already going to go up. So I think that that's the biggest problem is that everybody thinks they're going to run themselves into shape or work themselves out into shape. You can work yourself out to be strong and you can work yourself out to be structurally, uh, have structural integrity, 
as far as not getting injured. But what you really need to do to advance your cardio is to clean up your diet. And that's really what starts the process going down the right direction. I think that the fire service in and of itself is its own enemy because most guys eat like garbage. They don't sleep well. They're off days that they're supposed to be recovering from 24 hour shifts are spent doing construction work or anything that's high stress or high, high physical movement when they should be focusing on recovery and giving whatever hundred percent they may have to give every, every 72 hours. And, you know, that's just kind of been the, also the culture in the fire service that I think needs to change just a little bit. I don't know that you can force guys to not do stuff on their off days, but you know, I think if you got guys like, you know, doing very hard construction work or things of that nature, it, it just really, it just really is very difficult to put out physical output. If something really bad happens, if you're, when you show up at work and you're completely fatigued. So I don't know how you control that, but um, it definitely needs to be a, a topic for debate, you know? Yeah. I second that. So if our maximal strength is higher, our heart rates won't shoot through the roof every time we get to work because cardio is great until you add resistance to the body, like turnout gear and air packs or like those other guys you work with like armor and weapons. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like, you know, you don't go into a fire in tennis shoes and shorts. Mm-hmm. Um, you go into a fire with roughly 50 to 70 pounds of shit on. And that's if you're not, if it's not wet, you know, so if you're walking into a, a building that has the sprinkler alarms going off and you got water getting sprayed on you, you could be upwards of a hundred pounds. And that's not uncommon in a special forces uh, type unit for guys to be carrying or airborne units to be carrying somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of a hundred pounds of weight, no matter, no matter, ma- no amount of running is going to help you in that situation. Um, only strength and only general work capacity, GPP and on, only, lactate threshold because what's going to happen with that type of weight is your muscles are going to give out way before your heart. But the, the hard part is, is that people don't realize that they need to increase weight training density. So you need to be able to do more strength training in less time. And that increases cardiovascular output. So the goal is to get impeccable strength and impeccable conditioning without the increased mileage. Exactly. So most people that are cardiovascular, you know, driven, you start to look at what they do and it's all impact. Um, and that is a damaging knee, damaging back, damaging ankles. And the problem is, is that that may be if you're an army or a Marine or something like that, where you're only going to be physically active in that job for maybe four to six years, it, at most seven or eight. But in the, in the fire service, you're somebody's you know, insurance problem for 30 years. And that's a completely different scenario. Yeah. You signed up for 25 years. So is this your approach then to gain anaerobic conditioning and max strength using resistance training with low or moderate rest intervals and then low impact cardio? Yeah. And then, you know, also making sure that everything has a traction versus compression base. So, you know, you use deadlifts, you use squats, but you put Um, non-compressive or traction-based movements pre and non-compressive or traction-based movements post-compression. So what you would do is low-impact cardio. You would work on winning warm-ups in a circuit-based training to try to get the heart rate around 140, 150 BPM. Then you would come into a core lift with with, um, segmented rest periods in order to gain maximal strength, but also be able to gain maximal strength under fatigue to deal with lactic acid and all these other buffering effects. And then you would go into uh, assistance exercises solely based on structural weak points. And that's the problem is like everybody wants to train like a fireman or train like this or train like that. But what you don't hear people saying is 
is that they need to train for their specific weaknesses in order to not have weaknesses as a person. Now, once that has been established, then you can move on to sports specificity. So until you develop a generalized base of athleticism where you have good physical fitness, good strength, good mobility, um, et cetera, then you can work your way up towards fire department type specific training. And that's, that gets very difficult because, um, you know, people want to skip to the fancy stuff. They want to skip to the job specific stuff. And that's a huge error. Mm -hmm. I know I see you doing like dead mill walks and sled pulls for low impact cardio. What else are your go-tos? Well, in the wintertime, I always go to Lifetime Fitness and I walk in a three and a half foot deep pool for up to 20, 30 minutes. And that sounds like not hard, but trust me, if you do it fast, it's, it's very difficult. And you're working on muscles that just normally don't get worked because of water drag. Mm -hmm. um, row machines are great. Versa climbers are great. Jacob's ladders are very um, job specific. Um, kettlebell swings are, can be a little bit tedious if you don't build up the proper core structure base, but... I find that people that can swing a, say, a 35-pound kettlebell for time, usually it's about as good as you can work really hard in an in a air pack. Oh, so yeah. if you can swing a 35-pound kettlebell for 10 minutes, you're good for 10 minutes of really kicking ass on a fire. And I love that you mentioned the Versa Climber, man. That piece is missing from so many gyms. I love that thing. Oh, it's amazing. But like I said, it's hard and it doesn't beat up your joints. So those are the two things that I always look for. And probably the second one is the most thing I look for. Is this going to create mileage? Mm -hmm. um, and if it does not, then it definitely has a place in training for a 25 or 30 year career. And for resistance training, are you teaching and coaching them on the conjugate method or is it more individual specific and fixing weak points? Well, it's a mixture. So the thing of it is, is conjugate method really is it what I consider everybody has their own different mindset. But in my opinion, Conjugate thought pattern is really a Zatsiorski or science of practice of strength training mentality where you have an equal balance of utilizing max effort lifts, which is heavy, dynamic effort lifts, which is quick, and repetition or fatigue methods, which are higher repetitions or failure sets or stuff where it burns so bad you have to stop. Now, all of those things in between um, need to be utilized and, 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 and put together in order for you to have a complete protocol. So the reason that I like a conjugate thought process is the fact that it doesn't negate any of those particular factors. Now, the other side of that is structural weak points. So you tag in these particular energy systems and contractile loads with where you feel you have your biggest um, issues and weaknesses structurally, and now you have pretty much a foolproof program that is going to not only get guys stronger, quicker, and better endurance, but you're also going to reduce injuries based on the fact that your main focus is, is injury prevention through weaknesses or selection of weakness-based movements that are going to allow you to be a more functional person. And from what I understand, the way you train departments specifically is you like to teach technique, teach how to select proper modalities and how to detect weaknesses. And the first thing you do is you turn the more advanced guys into your own strength coaches so you can have a second set of eyes. So how do you teach these guys more and sort of clone yourself so that they can lead the way when you're not around and allow yourself to be more of the overseer? Yeah, that, that's a difficult thing. It's a difficult task. It's something I'm still learning, experimenting with, and perfecting. But I'll tell you right now, I started, I started Jackson or Grove City Fire Department in June, and we are still in the teaching phases, and it's almost the end of the year. This is how long it takes because how long did it take me to know what I know? 25 years? So 
what you start to realize is that, you know, you, you, you keep the guys accountable, you start teaching them how to do things and then you make it fun for them to do. But I think the big thing you have to do with fire departments is you have to start off easy. If they feel like they can succeed with what you're doing and then you slowly ramp that up from there, it's a lot easier of a task than coming in and trying to be, you know, totally out of control with your intensity. And then the guys feel that they're not prepared for it. So don't get me wrong. I like busting balls. I'm a ball buster, but I always put the guys where I feel like they can succeed. And then I build up from there. That way we're building up confidence in what we're doing and you get more buy-in. So you're able to meet each person where they're at. Well, as close as possible. What I usually do is the advanced guys or the guys that already work out, they have to usually take a back seat for six to eight months. So what I'm trying to do is bring up the weakest link. It's the same thing in training. What do you do in training? You find your weakest links and you try to bring those up first. So what I do is I find the weakest links in the fire department and I start this fitness process to fix the weakest guys. And then I slowly get them developed up into where they can handle the same workouts as the advanced guys. That, that takes time. And when you begin by teaching technique, is it on the big lifts like deadlift, squat, and bench? It's usually on lifts that are more isolated. So I teach them how to belt squat. I teach them how to do reverse hypers. I teach them how to properly drag sleds. If you notice the exercises that I'm all saying, those exercises are all traction-based. So if they make a mistake, we don't cause a back injury. If you go straight into teaching squatting or deadlifting, you're probably not going to be able to do that in a sufficient manner because they don't even know the type of muscles or which muscles they need to be activating correctly. So you almost have to go back and teach from like an elementary level and put them in exercises that are nearly impossible to have issues with because your main goal is to reduce insurance premiums. So if you're doing that, you have to think very, very cautiously about starting with core lifts. So it all comes down to exposing and fixing weaknesses. So let's just run through what this looks like in real life. For example, how do you address weaknesses in the reverse hyper or belt squat? Well, the first thing you want to do is with the reverse hyper is look at right and left deficiencies. So what you would do is put them a very lightweight on the reverse hyper and just watch them do it right legged and watch them do it left legged. See which are they using more back or glute or hamstring that can start creating a process of what you know you need to go do down the road. The next thing I would do is a 45 degree back extension because now you put them in that type of a machine and they lean over. If they're bending in all spine and they don't want to put any of it on their hamstrings or glutes, you know, they have a posterior weakness and they use their back to lift everything. Well, if I started that person on a deadlift, that'd be a bad, that'd be a bad situation. So it's just, it's just a lot of coaching eye. Um, and then the guys start to see what they're supposed to see and then they can pick it out of their dudes. And then, you know, I'm slowly getting to the point now where probably within the next year, I'll be able to write workouts on the board at Jackson and they'll know what all those exercises are and how they're supposed to look and perform. Um, but that takes time and it takes um, consistency. So that's kind of what we do. And that's kind of how I've learned over the last three or four fire departments is um, how to start it off, how to keep it moving and how to keep it um, fun and progressive to where, you know, everyone feels like that they're getting a workout, but nobody's being really left behind. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's complex because like I said, you're dealing with people all over different age ranges. You're dealing with people all over different athletic backgrounds. It's it's so you almost take the advanced guys and you make them sit back for a while and then you build up the small guys and then you or the weak guys and you get them straightened out. 
And then you, then you start to really bring in the program. So I would say that for anybody trying to start a wellness program or trying to do what I do, start off slow and have a five-year plan. And this is exactly what I do when I go into the fire departments now is what I've learned from other fire departments is if they don't want me there for at least five years, then I don't take the job mm -hmm. because I know that's how long it's going to take for me to get everything situated. Now talk to me about selecting proper modalities. What exactly does that mean? Well, selecting proper modalities would be, you know, one, everything that a fireman does on the job is going to be compressive, even sitting in a chair. Mm -hmm. So you're selecting modalities or strength training tools that are going to allow you to get stronger without putting excessive mileage on the joints. The only way you're going to be able to do that is selecting traction-based movements like reverse hypers, 45-degree back extensions, glute ham raises if they're strong enough. Um, belt squats and doing lots and lots of upper back and or posture work. So I think the modalities that you have to select are always looking at the skeletal and muscular system as a balance tool. We know that the anterior side is usually tight and dominant and the posterior side is usually weak and dormant. So what we do is we turn on the posterior side muscles with consistent volume um, and consistent intensity. And then what we start to find is that it actually corrects spinal problems, corrects shoulder problems, neck problems, um, and knee issues, which are all the ones I've just lifted, listed are one of the most common issues you're going to find physically in a fire department. And you say we should be focusing twice as hard on the posterior chain as we are on the front. Yeah. And Dr. Russin, the, one of the top physical therapist PhDs says three times as much. I say two, three times it gets to me a little bit to be a little bit tedious. I think a great place to start and maintain is two. I think that still gives us a great amount of efficient time to be able to get workouts complete. And I love how we keep hitting on longevity and low mileage. Why are you willing to only go 90% and only go 100% in meets where others feel they have to go 100% and max out? Well, if you look at the total intensity training volume of the old Soviet Union, which is the only real data that we can go off of as far as human capacity and longevity. Uh, the reason being is they were, they were getting data from thousands and thousands of athletes versus tens mm -hmm. um, or dozens. Um, so that is another key factor too. If you look at a lot of the Soviet data, it, it talks about multiple years of collection. So they're not just doing a, you know, a little five week study like we do here, which is just complete horseshit. So a lot of if a lot of the Soviet literature talks about long-term development, which is one of the few countries that's ever taken that level of interest in that long-term of study. So with that being said, that type of volume um, is a breakdown of understanding the percentages that are able to be utilized for at least a decade or longer. Um, if you read a lot of these Soviet books, they talk about training force maximum versus competition force maximum. And really what that means is that training force maximum is usually whatever you can withstand in technical mastery. Um, with years and years of, of training people, what I've realized and what the Soviets also realized was 90% was about the breaking point. So if we know that technique goes backwards over 90%, if they're not skilled lifters, then there's really no point in going above that. Furthermore, if you look at a lot of the data, um, strength training can be utilized in a progressive manner or a positive manner, meaning we're making good adaptation with 90%. What's the point of hundred percent? Really at that point, it's ego. So you will hardly ever see me fail in 
in the gym. But what's funny about that is, is that, so that means I never truly go to a hundred percent, but I also have three all-time world records. And that's what I find ironic is that I see people training 10% or more harder than I do. And I keep getting better even at 41 years old where these other guys are going completely as hard as they can and they're not getting any better. So I started to notice that probably 15 years ago and started really studying that. And what the Soviets found was that you basically get all the benefit of everything at 90% and everything above 90%. The risk to benefit ratio starts to outweigh itself. So on your max effort days by going 90 or 92% instead of a hundred, this is one of the keys to your success. And one of the ways you've been able to keep injuries down. Yeah. In, in myself and everyone. So once someone's techniques breaks down, even if they have another set, they're done. Mm -hmm. um, you, you never see me do anything sloppy. And that's why I was able to break world records and never get injured and then still have all my joints. You know, I, I mean, honestly, most of the guys that I competed with 20 years ago are all gone or beat up. Right. And I think the real reason was, is that I knew and I had a built-in governor of when to stop both mentally, emotionally, and physically. So um, those things allowed me to stay training, stay injury free. And so I try to apply that method with my fire departments and try to figure out the, the best way to get them stronger with the least amount of beatdown. And that should be everybody's goal is how do we get better with less mileage? Because at the end of the day, our, our careers are too long to have a short-term mindset. Why do you think that you were able to do that? Why were you able to keep ego at the door and not let it get in the way? Because I was educated and all the guys I lifted with were not. That was one of the big issues. If you ask anyone, I mean, think about this. How many guys that do you know of that you could go turn on powerlifting right now and you could watch them break an all-time world record and any of them have above a bachelor's degree? And that's the whole thing. I mean, I think the last guy that was like me in powerlifting was Dr. Fred Hatfield in the 80s. Hmm. Um, you know, one of the first guys to squat over 1,000 pounds and under 250 pounds body weight. Uh, was a professor, studied, you know, he was the one that figured out compensatory acceleration and was constantly experimenting. Um, you know, but if you look at it from that perspective, you, you know, you don't have a lot of guys that are highly educated. And that was the whole thing, I think, is like I learned a lot from – Louis Simmons and Westside Barbell, I probably learned more of what not to do than what to do when I was there. I was just smart enough to pick it up. When you see guys hit their genetic ceiling in training and actually get better instead of fading away, what do they know that others don't? They know that it's more important what you do outside of the gym than inside the gym. Can you elaborate on that? What do you do outside of the gym? Well, my entire day is revolving around low stress environments, eating properly, um, trying to educate myself and other people, um, but stay in a positive mindset and, and also surrounding themselves with positive mindsets. I think that's one other big thing you find is a big cancer in the fire service is that for some reason, guys only work one every three days and they hate their job and they hate their family life and they hate everything. And that spews over to other people that they work with. And you find guys that work for themselves and do stuff that they're passionate about, like myself and others is that we don't have that same mindset. We have a completely different mindset that I think reduces the level of stress that we have on work days and off days. I think for a lot of people, and like I said, there's no calling out, but like I think from being around fire services my whole life, you find that people get into fire departments because it's kind of the last draw. They didn't have anything else to go to. It's not because they're passionate about being a fireman. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't guys like that. There are, 
But if you look at the general scope of things is that most people dive into fire service because it's secure, not because it's a passion. Um, you know, I got into what I got into because I was passionate about getting people stronger and getting people better. And that's why I'm kind of a trendsetter in what I do is because I, I love what I do. I study it and it is my identity, but you find that people that, that do fire departments, I would say in a very low scale, 10% of the people that are in fire service are there because they didn't have another choice or they felt like they didn't have another choice, but never truly found their passion. And that creates a, a big rift issue in um, how they perceive work and how they perceive their job. That's right, man. Yeah, you get into the fire service thinking you're going to be fighting fire and have this exciting job. But in reality, it's a lot of EMS runs and a lot of sleep deprivation. Exactly. And now you were friends with the late strength sensei, Charles Poliquin, and he taught you to utilize tempos and time under tension and accessory work. Can you say more on how to do so? If Charles's claim to fame was anything, it was getting people to understand and open their minds that there's different ways of calculating or doing exercises more so than just reps and sets. So if you look at doing, say, a squat, right, and you do three sets of 10, that would be a normal squat set and rep range for most people. Well, Charles would take that three sets of 10 and make it a five-second countdown and a five-second count up. Now, anybody that works out knows that that is a completely different workout than saying three sets of 10. Um, that's what gave Charles an advantage is that he looked things through and a hypertrophy and bodybuilders type mindset where he would get more work out of a very similar workout. So I, I found that his workouts looked very archaic on the surface. But if you started to dig through and look at the tempos, rest periods, clustering of sets, et cetera, that he could turn very simplistic movements into something that was completely a different stimulus. Um, that, that was my opinion on Charles loading uh, parameters. Now I don't fully agree with all ways that he applied those. I felt that he was deficient in using the dynamic effort method, um, a little too reliant on utilizing the repetition method and very uh, sporadic in using the max effort method. So um, those things can be also thought of or discussed, but in reality, I think he opened my mind up to reevaluating tempos and actually gaining strength, muscle size, and certain levels of endurance by actually slowing down the movement versus thinking of power all the time. Absolutely. And he opened my mind up to the importance of magnesium. Are there any other lessons that you took away from him and your, your guys' personal relationship? You know, he was as passionate about everything as I was. I think um, one of the first things that Charles really taught me was the process of starting to understand diet and supplementation, like you're talking about magnesium. Um, magnesium has become a huge factor now in, in society because herbicides, pesticides, chemicals, and pollution have started to pull magnesium out of normal food. And that is helping the process or accelerating the process in diabetes, sleep deprivation, and all these different slowly but surely, you know, death, um, death level type things that just slowly creep up over time. Um, and I, that was a big wake up call for me. Um, but like for Charles, I think him understanding inflammation was also another key factor. I think he really, if you look at a lot of his uh, bioprint or biosignature which is a, you know, a alarm code test that we do on all fire service guys. Um, 
you start to find that a lot of them share the same inflammation. And over time, that's really what's causing or at least accelerating the cancers, the diabetes, the blood pressure issues, et cetera. So opening my mind to those types of things was massive. Um, Serrano was another key factor in those particular mindsets. Um, you know, so and Serrano and Charles knew each other very well. So um, I, I think that was a that was a big pivotal point in my education. I knew that Charles had stuff when we were doing seminars together. I knew that Charles's education background in certain areas needed me to be able to focus on those areas to become what I am now. And I got really happy the other day when I saw you post about reducing overtraining. And on your whiteboard, you wrote that lack of sleep equals one to two sessions, loss of appetite equals four sessions or one week, and lack of sleep equals one to two weeks. Can you explain this thought process? Basically, what it says is that um, it's the first one to two sessions is the, the first stage. And the first stage is usually, oh, man, I don't want to train today. It's lack of motivation. So once you start sensing lack of motivation, Usually that means you need to take your training down a step, um, at least for one session. Then you start losing lack of sleep, I think, is the second tour. And that starts to take two to three or maybe a week to, to actually correct. Now, the problem is, is that what people don't realize is that training is a stressor. So if you're not sleeping, you're not eating correctly, and you're on top of that, you think you're going to make performance gains in training. You may do so if you're very weak or just starting, but as you become more advanced, you start realizing that there's a lot more pieces to the puzzle in order for your success to keep um, improving. So, so what I found is that I'm always very, very um, measuring or very measurable of, of these particular scenarios. So that way I can kind of stop them at least at scenario one or two before it goes too deep. So I think the third scenario takes anywhere from one mesocycle or whatever and that would be when you start to get sick. So you start to get these sinus infections. You start to have these flu-like feelings. Um, you know, you start training up to that point. Then what's going to end up happening is the body's just fighting for survival. It's not trying to put on new muscle. It's not trying to get stronger. And that's the hardest part is like, you know, powerlifters. Like, you know, I love Dave Tate to death. And I love a lot of these guys that are intense to death. But you notice that they sell intensity. And in reality, that is a very easy way to cop out education and saying that, Hey, if, you know, just overtraining the body will adapt to it. And I'm completely hundred percent against that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like to tell firefighters who work for busy departments that your first day off is your day off of hard training because the sleep deprivation and being overstressed and then training hard is going to be counterproductive. And that's why we see a lot of like low testosterone levels and elevated cortisol. Oh, sure. The low testosterone is coming from inflammation, lack of sleep, uh, poor protein um, or, or lack of protein, poor mm -hmm. digestion and or selection of carbohydrates. You're having too many oils, too many trans fats, um, too much sodium benzenate is a huge issue. Parabens. Um, every fire department I walk into and go into the shower rooms, they're using the worst possible shit you could possibly put on your body. On top of that, you're adding in fire retardant gear, burning chemicals in cars and houses. Mm -hmm. um, so what we try to do is try to switch them to natural cleaners, paraben and sulfate free body washes, things of that nature, especially if the, if the biosignature code is showing that those are issues. I appreciate how thorough you're being with these departments, man. Now I noticed that I would squat or deadlift on duty and then be up all night taking runs. And then I would be so fucking sore because I didn't sleep and recover. So are you mm -hmm. concerned at all about 
putting the on-duty crews through a hard training session, knowing that they might be up all night taking runs and not recovering? Well, I will say this. My thought process on how I do that with Whitehall, which is a very busy and very bad area, is a little different than what I do at Jackson, Pickerington, and Dublin. I'm going to be completely fair and honest with you that their level of run intensity is much lower. So I have been very fortunate in a training sense to not really have to worry about that as much. But I always tell firemen, if I were a fireman, this is how I would do it. I would wake up in the morning and I would train my heavy upper body. And then right before I leave, 24 hours later is when I would train my legs so that I have 48 hours in order to recover before I come back on duty. That's how I would lay out my four days a week. Department to department, it's going to differ. Now, what do you personally do for recovery besides making sleep a priority? Well, sleep's number one, and that's the, that's our part, but the quality of sleep is important. So I always do a magnesium protocol, especially on heavy training days. Um, Epsom salt baths are amazing, um, especially I like Dr. Teal's stuff. It always seems to work really well, and it's cheap, and you can get it anywhere. Mm-hmm. Hot, cold contrast baths, saunas, but you need to be careful that you're hydrated, but saunas can work very well. Yeah. from raising growth hormone output and getting out toxins, just eating clean all day. I think that's the hardest thing that most firemen, they want to do a hot tub or they want to do this or that for recovery. Really, if you're eating clean and the body's not fighting off nutritional toxins and it's not really overtrained and it's getting proper sleep, there is no need for external recovery. Um, I only ever really utilize external means for recovery when I was in competitive mode where I had to accelerate the, the healing process. But if you truly want recovery, then hydration is key. Constant nutrition of the, of the proper type is key and proper sleep is key. Those are really the three keys you need. If you have those, uh, all the other stuff's just fluff. What magnesium supplement do you take before bed? Just curious. I use ATP lab center mag and I take that now, right now my bioprint or my, metabolic analytics testing is telling me to take a thousand milligrams at dinner and then it switches me to magnesium theanate right before bed for uh, brain blood crossover. Thanks for sharing that. And then firefighters and paramedics obviously sit too much. I mean, the slow departments are always sitting in the recliners and the busy departments are always sitting in the truck or the medic. How can we manage our tight hips and glutes and fix our postural deficiencies? Well, what I would do if I were, you know, in charge of every fire department, they had to listen to exactly what I, what I said, which is never going to happen. But if I did that, what I would do is after truck checks in the morning, they would have to do a circuit of reverse hypers, 45 degree back extensions and belt squats. Then after lunch, they would have to do some sled dragging, some planking to turn on transverse abdominis um, and some other type of posture muscles. And then right before dinner, Um, we would just try to stay moving, um, like with just something, you know, like it could be anything. Um, but if you looked at, if you did traction based movements, right. When they got on duty, you did a little bit of preemptive work right in the middle of the afternoon. I think if they just did that for 15 minutes each time, maybe 20 minutes, that's, that's 40 minutes of workout in a whole day. You'd probably fix 75% of the problem. That fits right into what I like to recommend too, which is what I call return reps and station strolls as a way to move more on duty. So whenever you return from a run, do a set of dips or like Matt mentioned, the reverse hyper or belt squat. And then instead of sitting in the recliners, I like to pull sleds around the firehouse, AKA the station strolls. 
Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't even have to be heavy. That's the thing. It's like it just has to be glute activated and it just has to start giving your giving your lumbar and your and your um sacral spine just a little bit of traction. And I love some friendly firehouse competition like a modified NFL combine, for example. Tell me about the tests that you think are really good for firemen, like you said earlier, swinging a 35-pound kettlebell for 10 minutes straight. What else? Yeah, I mean, so we do that for a time. Usually when I first started a fire department, um, I'm not going to bust any balls, but most of the time you go to a fire department, most guys can't do that for more than a minute and a half, which is scary. Usually by the time I'm done with them in a couple of years, they're up around the five to seven minute range. And then I would say that the ultra elite guys that listen to everything I tell them to do can, can do it for 10 minutes pretty easily. Um, I, I like that testing. I like the sumo deadlift, but I like the sumo deadlift in a double overhead, a double overhand stance and the reason or position, because usually the grip is a factor and it forces the spine to stay equal on both the left and right side. So I'm a huge sumo deadlift guy, especially because the number one problem with lower back pain is going to be hip mobility. So the sumo deadlift tends to be a little bit more hip mobility um, cautious than the, the conventional pull. Um, we do a belt squat test where once I have the guys fit enough, they have to do 150 pounds for 100 reps straight. Wow. And that to me shows your anaerobic threshold in your legs and the ability. I mean, those guys usually are winding their ass off, but my ultra fit guys will do that with a, with, with a bottle on. I like all of those. They're all hard on the muscles and the lungs and all zero impact. Exactly. Now, if it were up to you, what would gym class and PE look like in schools? Oh, man. It's hard. It's hard because I think that we should all start our kids off in tumbling and gymnastics, not at an elite level, obviously. But at three to five years old, you got to learn dexterity. Most of your movement patterns, neurological control and all that are created between the ages of three and ten. So if you're not doing things that are like, say, walking on your hands and handstands and cartwheels, those types of things need to be done in, in the early ages of training. And the Soviets figured that out many years ago. Um, so I would say that those things need to be carefully implemented in games type scenarios that aren't too competitive. But, um, you know, if you look back, there was a high school in the early sixties that JFK kind of sponsored or funded, and they did everything that was very physical labor type, type gym movements where they would have to climb monkey bars and do all these other things. It almost looked military. Um, and the, the guys that shape on that, I think they did that for two to four years and the guys that were in shape were just impeccable shape. So uh, I think that's going to come back around because the insurance companies just can't afford anymore to have in the society that's so fat and unhealthy. But the other side is that the medical community, I think almost fights that off because they know with the new technology that we can keep people alive with medication and all these different surgeries. But at the end of the day, um, you know, being healthy is going to have to be more um, profit saving than being sick. And what I mean by that is that if you look at the medical community, it, it's sad to say it. My mom is the, you know, is the chief of dentistry for the VA um, for Cleveland, but, if you look at the entire scenario is they want people on medication. They want people fat and diabetic. And I'm not saying that they want it for people to be unhealthy, but it's money-making. Mm -hmm. And when everybody's super healthy and everybody doesn't need medications, what happens to the medical community? You know, that's one of the biggest, you know, drivers of our economy now. And we've done that to ourselves. So I think the big problem with the medical community is we got to stop looking at it as a profit level business and it has to be more of a charity 
Um, and until we do that, I think it's not really going to save itself. I mean, flip on a commercial and find out how many times you see drugs being marketed or things that are unhealthy being marketed. I don't think that that's by coincidence and I'm not some kind of crazy theorist of all these things, but I mean, it's just, it's just very odd to me that, you know, we have more, you know, stuff spent on trying to keep us unhealthy than we do stuff to healthy. And I, I, you know, it's just, it's our own problem. We need to shift to a focus on prevention and root cause recognition. And this is why we see fire departments hiring guys like you and wellness coaches. So hopefully we're moving in the right direction. All right, now yeah. switching gears, Matt, you like to ask firefighters what they like to do outside of the firehouse. And I know you yeah. have a passion for cars like the 70 Charger with the Hellcat motor, but what's your <laughs> idea of a good time outside of the gym? Man, I, you know what? I'm just so, I think probably the reason I'm successful is I'm so one-minded um, I love working on working on a building hot rods, but now I've gotten to the point that my damn toys are so expensive that I don't want to mess them up. So I have to take them to my friends that are, that's what all they do. You know, it's kind of like if you want a real workout by a real strength coach, you go to a person that that's their job. Um, I'm a great welder. I can do things pretty well, but I'm not a good enough welder to make new engine brackets to put a Hellcat in a, in a hundred thousand dollar charger, you know, like those types of things you just don't make mistakes on because it costs you dearly. So, um, I love working on cars. I love, love going out and riding four wheelers and stuff like that. Um, I'm, I'm a huge motorcycle guy. I've been, I've probably put 200 plus thousand miles on Harley Davidson's and, I would say half of those miles has, has been done with my grandma um, riding with me wow. since she was the only one that was retired at that time um, that could go and just take a month off of work because she didn't have to work anymore. Um, so, you know, I, I, I love going out and just kind of cowboy tripping. Like where I'll just get on my, I'll get on my bike. I'll have two weeks of clothes. I'll have a, a big wad of cash in my credit card. And I just take off and just go stay where I stay and just ride where I ride. I might have a, an end goal of where to get to. So like last year I rode to Anchorage, Alaska and back home. Wow. Uh, but I love doing that without any real plan for the day and just kind of see what I fall upon. And that, that to me is really fun. And when you're traveling like that, I know you like to go to different gyms and you like to seek out equipment like machines and bars that you don't have at your gym because it helps yeah. you get stronger. And I'd love to know what the coolest piece of unfamiliar equipment that you've ever come across is and that you can't wait to try again. Oh man, that's a good question. That's a really good question. I have to think about it because I go so many places. Well, I'll tell you my buddy that owns Fortis gym up in Toronto. Um, he has a bench press that you actually don't have to unrack. So you lift it and the bench moves away for you. It's kind of like a monolift for a bench press. It's really neat. Um, I always liked that. Uh, that seems to stand out in my mind. Um, not really anything in particular that I'm like, Oh gosh, I really have to have this, but um, dynamic a company that we're slowly trying to work with up in um, up in uh, Wisconsin, which we may end up having stuff for sale that that they make on the website. They uh, they make a vertical leg press that is a completely very odd position that really kills my legs, and that's saying a lot since I squat you know nine hundred raw. But um, I'm always looking for things that just make my muscles have to work weird ways. I you know, I'm so used to regular squats and regular bench pressing and regular deadlifting that they're almost boring. Um, you know, I, I know where I'm at on those. I know how to be explosive on those. So I try to do things that make my body constantly guess and re-educate and kind of just develop new. Now, how much of that actually happens at 41 years old, I don't really know. But I will tell you this is that 
can always tell when I've had a good workout because I leave feeling pumped. I leave feeling like my muscles are full. And when I do things that I'm very similar or I, I'm very used to, um, I start to find that I really don't feel like I've worked out. My body just is like, oh, I know the answer to this. And it does it. And I don't really feel a benefit for it. So when I walk into a gym that doesn't have anything that I use, I'm actually very happy about that where most people are like freaking out. And then I would love to hear your thoughts on why a good pair of sandals are essential for the gym. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if you can get away with that in normal gyms, but in my gym, let me go back to why I had to wear sandals. So back about 2006 or seven, I was getting up around 280, 290, pushing 300 range. And uh, 2008, I broke the first all-time world record in total at 2665, which the world record was 2662 for many years. Um, so I took the world record total. And I started to notice as, as that at that point forward, as the bigger I got, the harder it was to get my fucking shoes on. And so I started wearing slides basically because I was lazy and I was tight. Now, what I noticed though, is that if I took a small vacation or I took three or four days off from lifting, the mobility came right back and I could put shoes on pretty easy. But as I was constantly beating up my body's legs every every 72 hours, like you're supposed to. Um, I just had this 100% all the time stiffness. And some of that may have came from the car accident when I was a kid, but so I just started getting into wearing slides. Well, then getting into wearing slides almost became all year round. Now, if you notice when I do legs, I always have shoes on. And the reason is I would totally do my squats and deadlifts barefoot. But because I was hit by a car when I was a kid, my right leg is nine millimeters shorter than my left which is enough to really mess up my back so I wear a, a special heel lift in my right shoe in order to make sure my pelvis is set straight so uh, trust me when I say this that I would lift barefoot on squats and deadlifts if it wasn't that I needed a special shoe that's interesting so if that wasn't the case you would be out there squatting and deadlifting with no shoes on yeah for sure Last question that I ask everybody at the end of the podcast, if you could have a drink or a conversation with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? See, the thing of it is, is I'm a big history buff, so I, would, I, couldn't, I couldn't narrow it down to one. After doing this advanced programming seminar, which we'll have available on DVD or download on the website, I would say that, you know, in I think it was 1122 BC, the uh, Shan Dynasty in China implemented the first weight training program for the army. And they wanted to make guys stronger and they made them do strength tests in order to be on the Shan Dynasty army in China. I think whoever thought of that, I would love to sit down and just pick their brain on how they figured that out. I think to be able to understand that, what, nearly 3,000 years ago um, is just unbelievable. I mean, this is before the Romans and the Greeks and everything. So I, I don't know. I mean, that would be really neat to figure that out. I would like to have talked to, I would have to look at my notes, but there was a guy called, I think his name was Kravetsky. He was the first Russian scientist in like 1895 that started to put together training programs with medical history, sleep and meditation. I mean, all the things that we think are like cutting edge now, the Russians were experimenting with this particular, this one doctor, Kravetsky, Vladimir Kravetsky, back in 1895 was already messing with this. Um, to talk to him would be immense. Uh, so I, I think that would probably give you a good indication of who I would want to talk to, I suppose.
I love that answer, man. Very unique. And it shows that your passion for this sport really runs deep. All right, Matt. So if people want to find you, they can go to patreon.com slash winning strength or winningstrength.com. They can follow you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at real Matt winning. Where else do you want people to go to connect with you? Yeah. You can also get on for free information. You can get on the, the YouTube channel and it's winning strength. Um, you get on there. We probably have a couple of hundred videos with all kinds of information and some of it is tactical um which is funny because you know i feel myself as one of the leading foremost guys in tactical understanding and coaching but when i put out tactical videos it doesn't seem they get many views um so it's it's interesting that you start to realize that although you and i both have a passion in physical fitness that it's not really a passion in the fire service in a national community and that needs to change well, I love what you're doing, man. Thank you so much for the conversation. This was a blast. Yep, not a problem. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shikoba.